is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. U.S. starting to get a handle on the pandemic. A few million people getting vaccinated every day. Hospitals, pretty good shape. Deaths going down, not the same around the world. Infection rates at their highest level since the start of the pandemic. India especially ravaged right now. We'll look into what's going on there and other hot spots. Federal health officials recommending using the Johnson & Johnson vaccine again. The public universities in California are going to require students to be vaccinated. Will the students listen? And the Oscars this weekend is the pandemic setting them up for failure. We start with infections, though, outside of this country. Dr. Lori Post, director of the Institute for Public Health and Medicine, Northwestern Medicine. Rob Archer and I asked her what's going wrong all over the world. So right now we have several countries that are in an all-out outbreak um, in the pandemic after, uh, after experiencing significant declines over time. Countries like India, for example, yeah, right? India, let, let me just point out, India is like our biggest worry around the world at, right now. So India went from about 25,000 cases to 266,000 cases per day. Um, that's a, a multiplied by 106 over the course of one month. Um, that's a terrifying rate. And then we also think about that that country is home to more than 1.3 billion people and so the rate per day is per 100,000 population is about 20 people per day. And that's a lot of people when you consider how large um, India is, the second largest, most populous country in the globe. Is it so, a matter? Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say go on to another country, but go ahead. Uh, is it a matter of, in the case of India, of uh, with them not getting the vaccinations rolled out well enough or fast enough or not taking enough precautions or, or what is it exactly? Well, here's the thing is that in India, you know, you have to choose your life over your livelihood. And so people can't afford sometimes just to um, stay at home. And also you have a large um, poor population that's um, homeless. And so for them, it's more difficult to socially distance. But then again, also we, um, not enough vaccines, not enough tests going on, but also something very specific to India that also interacts with um, Iran is that a lot of people that live in India are international migrants. They, they um, are labor workers. And so therefore, the more that people interact and move around, the more they transmit the disease to other people. So that also brings up the issue of Iran, who also have a massive increase in cases. Was that the next country you were going to go on to? Yeah, I was going to just yeah mention that. So Iran had a seven-day moving average um, that went from 9,000 to 24,000 um, over um, a couple of weeks, and that that increased by threefold, you know, literally over a couple of weeks. And so, and deaths are also increasing as well there. What is it going to take to get the outbreaks under control in those two countries and elsewhere in the world? And are they so out of control it's going to affect an outbreak in other parts of the world that we thought we had it under control? Absolutely. So, um, I think that it's so important to emphasize that what happens overseas comes home. And so um, the more transmissions that occur, every time there's a transmission, mutations are happening. And so the more transmissions that happen, the more chance there is for new variants that are going to be more lethal and have a reproductive advantage. And so that means that something could develop in you know, Nigeria and India, come back to America and, and go through and kill people. 
how is Europe doing? We hear these these you know news segments that you know this country will open up to Americans at this date. This country will open up to us a little later. Maybe some people have you know European summer vacations in the back of their mind, but they're not doing as as good as we are when it comes to the vaccines either. No, they're not. Um, I was just looking for my notes here too on Europe, but Europe. So basically, the, the three biggies in Europe are France, um, the UK, and Italy. And right now, um, France is having an outbreak. What needs to happen there to get the outbreaks under control? Um, you know, social distancing, hand sanitation. But the biggest thing we can do right now is people get the vaccine. Um, and, you know, rolling out the vaccine, any type of vaccine, even getting the first dose will make a massive difference in the number of people infected. Yeah, they've had trouble there getting those campaigns underway. Dr. Lori Post directs the Institute for Public Health Medicine. Northwestern Medicine works on the global COVID surveillance. Doctor, thanks. The federal health officials recommending the use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine again paused nearly two weeks ago over blood clots concerns. We told you all about that. Caused local health agencies to stop using the vaccine. Now they say, go ahead, use it again, but will people line up for it? Dr. Matthew Winniam, director of the Center for Bioethics and Humanities, is at the University of Colorado. Rob and I talked to him just before the news of the recommendation came out today. We asked how rare are the clots following the shots and if a direct link was ever really established. Yeah, I mean, so so the answer to the first question is still not a hundred percent certain, but it's somewhere in the range of one in a million. Um, so it's a very rare risk. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, you know, we do know that people who catch COVID also have a high ri- higher risk of getting blood clots. I took care of a person the other day in the hospital who, you know, had COVID and um, and actually clotted off the artery, leading to his spinal cord. Um, ended up with a with a spinal cord stroke, essentially. So you can have very serious blood clots from COVID itself. Um, so that's sort of the balancing act here. Um, and one in a million is not a, not a zero risk, uh, but there's very little about this pandemic that has had zero risk. Is there an important piece here that, that part of this is for us, right? And part of this is for you guys, the doctors. We look out for headaches, you know, really bad ones. And then you know that this is on the radar because it's not the type of clot that you treat the usual way. I'm so glad you brought that up because, yes, uh, my sense is one of the key reasons why they decided to do a pause rather than just sending out a warning letter is because they really wanted doctors to, to have their attention called to the fact that you treat these blood clots differently. Um, a typical blood clot, uh, the average person who comes in with a deep vein thrombus, for example, a DVT, uh, will immediately get a large dose of heparin. And it turns out with this particular type of clot, it's quite rare, but uh, if you give heparin, um, it could actually make things worse. And, you know, God forbid you have a young person shows up in your clinic and you haven't heard about this yet and you give them uh, heparin and end up making things much worse. So I think there was a, a large portion of the caution here was to communicate with clinicians about the proper way to treat uh, these blood clots if you happen to see one. Even taking this blood clot issue into account, uh, how would you assess assess the uh, safety of these vaccines that were seemingly produced so quickly? You know, uh, remarkably safe. Uh, uh, you know, we we keep waiting actually 
for uh, you know for signals of uh, unsafe uh, or side effects, and really seeing very little. Um, and certainly in comparison to catching COVID, um, there you know there's really nothing so far that uh, that would make you very concerned about any of these vaccines, including the J and J vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine that's being used in Europe. Um, all of them are you know considerably safer than. And catching the illness, and uh, and of course they've they've all been amazingly um, effective. Uh, I have to say, you know, we uh, early on in the pandemic, my, my specialty is infectious diseases, and um, it's very common for you know the flu vaccine, for example, to be about fifty percent effective. Um, so the fact that we've got a series of vaccines now, all of which are in the 85, 90, 95 percent effective. Uh, it's really quite extraordinary. Dr. Matthew Winia directs the Center for Bioethics, Humanities, University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Doctor, thanks. The University of California and the Cal State systems here now requiring all students and staff to be vaccinated before they get back to campuses in the fall. Mandatory only once the FDA officially approves the vaccine use, because right now it's the emergency use. So when they do meet official approval, will the students or the staff, you know, push back? Joseph Castro, chancellor of the California State University system. Rob and I went over the basics with the chancellor to start, asking if this was for everybody, students, faculty, staffers. All almost 500,000 of our students and then uh, all of our 56,000 faculty and staff planning for the fall. And we want to do everything we can to ensure the, the safety of everybody involved. And so this requirement will be contingent upon a full approval by the FDA of at least one of the vaccinations. And uh, how long do you think it's going to take before we get the full approval? Because right now it's only emergency use authorization not fully approved yet. That's right. Uh, we anticipate the full approval uh, in advance of the semester uh, of both Moderna and Pfizer. Obviously, it'll be up to them and the FDA, but that's our working assumption for right now. If the assumption turns out to be incorrect, they're not fully approved, then what do you do? Because there's other there's other schools out there, at least a dozen plus, I think Stanford's actually doing it too, that say, you know what, you got to have it. It doesn't matter if it's emergency use or not. Yeah, I think we'll have to um, assess the situation at that time and make the best judgment we can. Um, the important message for us through this requirement is that we want everybody to get vaccinated and to do so as soon as possible. Now that California allows everybody, uh, all adults, uh, to get vaccinated, our efforts have been to make sure that those centers uh, are up and running at our campuses or nearby so that it makes it as easy as possible for everybody connected to CSU to get vaccinated in the coming weeks and months. You know, with everything being so politicized right now, you know this is going to happen. There's going to be somebody who's going to say that you're discriminating against people who uh, won't get the vaccine for religious or ethical reasons. They claim uh, they might have religious grounds and that, you know, they believe that uh, uh, stem aborted fetus cells were used in the vaccine. Or then you've got the other contingent that, that are against all vaccines and they're going to try to make a case. Are you worried about that or do you think that's such a small issue? Well, uh, we've received an overwhelming positive response thus far. And I know our students in particular have wanted us to do this. Um, I believe that with the exemptions that we plan for medical and religious reasons, that we'll be able to address concerns that uh, some of our folks have in the community. 
And then there, of course, will always be the option for someone to, uh, you know, learn virtually if they're not comfortable with the requirement in the fall. It is easier now to get a vaccine, and it should be easy all the way through summer, right? Because there's appointments that are they're going unfilled in some places. So if somebody wants one Absolutely. by now, they can go and, and find one. But let's say everybody's yes. going back to campus. You were mentioning this earlier, I think. Is there going to be something set up where, hey, it's 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 check-in day. I'm bringing my stuff. Do you have your vaccine yet? Because we're giving them over here, you know, 20 yards away. Go and get yours. Is that going to happen at the campuses? Well, we're we're focused on getting them vaccinated now. And uh, we'll be part of a statewide vaccination campaign. We'll have a conversation with Governor Newsom's staff about this next week. So I I see this as a campaign uh, now and for the next several weeks uh, so that there will not be a situation where folks need to take it at the last minute. Yeah, let's get into the details because uh, you're not considered fully vaccinated until two weeks after your second shot if you're taking the Moderna or the Pfizer. So if someone gets the second shot, and then the next day they want to come to campus. What are what are the details on that? Well, we're still working out the details, but my sense is they would need to take it um, further in advance so that they could come on the first day because uh, we want to make sure that they'd be certified uh, to come safely. Uh, but we still are working out the specifics. And again, our, our goal is to make sure that we uh, reduce any you know risk that would be there for uh, all that that are on uh, campus for this fall and beyond. Have you thought ahead to boosters? I mean, if we end up needing these in the fall or early next year, the student health centers, I imagine, are going to be someplace where this is going to be the easiest spot to provide them. You know, I heard something the other day saying, you know what, the good thing that, that was happening with the Johnson & Johnson shots, and we'll see if they get approved again, but that was, you know, for people who were hard to come back sometimes three weeks later, and they named college students, are hard to keep up with appointments. So maybe getting it on campus is not a bad idea. I agree with you. Uh, We have student health centers at each of our 23 campuses, and, you know, they'll be able to play a key role in this area. What we've also learned during the pandemic is it's important to have partnerships, and some of our campuses have worked with uh, private companies like Kaiser, uh, CVS, Rite Aid, uh, other public partners, the county public health department. So, We'll, we'll do uh, everything we can uh, in support of our students and faculty and staff. And I feel confident that uh, given the time that we have to plan, which is the reason why we made the announcement yesterday, I think we'll be in good shape as we get ready for the fall. What do you think campus life looks like when things are back in the fall and kids are on campus? And if they're going to be there, they've got to have their vaccines. Are we still, I mean, this is probably up to the state, right, when it comes to masking guidelines and stuff, but how different from the usual experience that we all had is it still going to be for this next crop of students? Well, of course, it depends on what exactly is happening in August and September, and I've learned in the pandemic that there are twists and turns, but I think the trends are going in the right direction with vaccinations, and our people are beginning to get vaccinated, especially our faculty and staff, many of them have already. Uh, students are getting vaccinated. So I do believe that it's going to look a lot uh, more like the, a, a new normal than it did, uh, you know, this this last fall and, and part of the spring. So I do anticipate masking. Um, my hope is that the social distancing regulations will be uh, relaxed over time. And just probably a mental relief, too, to have that kind of normalcy back especially maybe if you got it a couple years now you're a junior or something like you want to go to college still (laughs) absolutely i mean by and large just about every student i hear from and their families they want to come back 
Joseph Castro, Chancellor of the California State University System. Short break, and then the winner is, well, maybe not the Academy Awards. The Oscars are Sunday. If you normally pay attention to this kind of thing, but you don't know they're coming up, well, the pandemic probably to blame. Movies were different. People didn't go to theaters. Some of the releases were delayed. Award season is not happening quite on time. Streaming was a possibility, but maybe you still missed the big pictures that did come out. Mark Malkin, senior culture and events columnist and editor at Variety. Rob and I had a chance to ask why we even still have some of these shows. Why do we still have award shows? Because there was a year that films did come out. They didn't come out in the traditional sense. We didn't see them in theaters for the most part. We did see them on streaming. Um, And this is also a way of Hollywood trying to urge people to get ready to go back to theaters. As we know, the, you know, Hollywood, the economy in Hollywood was decimated by this pandemic. And one of the biggest, you know, uh, falls there are theaters. So the Oscars, the Academy, they're really going to be pushed pressing um, this issue of getting back into theaters. How do you think the year went? Did we get good stuff? Because there is a crowd because you couldn't go to the theaters. They didn't watch the movies. So how were the movies for those who just weren't paying attention? There's some great filmmaking, you know, Nomadland, Minari, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Chicago 7. There are just, there is some great filmmaking. It's just, as you're alluding to, there is just this cloud over it that, you know, forever these movies are going to be known as films that came out during the pandemic. And uh, even before the pandemic, ratings for award shows were just kind of slipping and slipping. Is, is the pandemic just made that so much worse that it might not be able to recover? Or do you think that somewhere out there, there's someone who's going to direct an award show that's going to come up with a new way of doing it? It's going to make it interesting. You know, the Oscars, the Academy, they are promising a show like no other, which obviously we know is going to be like no other because it's done during a pandemic. So it'll be interesting to see how the, you know, the Oscars are the biggest award show of the year and is the, it's the last big award show. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they pull it off. But then let's talk about next year. If, you know, we're sort of out of this pandemic and things could get back to as normal as possible, I think there's going to be a lot of interest in people saying, okay, let's see how they return from the pandemic. So I think there'll be interest this year. But like you said, you know, this has been going on for years pre-pandemic. Award show ratings have just been, you know, going, you know, lower and lower and lower. So someone hopefully will come up with some new way to present all these award shows that the ratings aren't, you know, in the toilet. (laughs) How do you think it's going to look they they made some pains to say early on right no zoom calls because we want this to actually look like the oscars we want the stars there in their seats union station so they can spread out so that's different and then they're going to try and treat it like a set so if cameras are rolling people take their masks off we can we can see their faces yeah that's going to be really interesting you know i think it's really fascinating that the academy decided to tell attendees if you're on camera you don't have to wear a mask Yes, we understand why they're saying that, and they could be 100% safe, but the optics to see a lot of, you know, A-list celebrities not wearing masks, sort of having a good time, laughing, doing their things, the optics just may not look right, but... The producers, including, you know, Steven Soderbergh, you know, an Oscar winning director, you know, he wants to 
make sure that people are seeing and hearing the best show possible. And that's the reason for no Zoom. So anyone who can't be there will be hooked up via satellite um, in their region through probably a local satellite feed or a television station there. So they really don't, what they don't want is someone to forget to unclick mute when they're about to accept their Oscar. <laughs> the Oscars, yeah. Uh, any predictions for us? Nomadland. I mean, all indications are Chloe Zhao will win Best Director, Best Picture. Um, I think uh, that is really a guarantee. And Anthony Hopkins, of course. And Anthony Hopkins, which is really interesting race because he's up against Chadwick Boseman. Um, so most people have their money on Chadwick Boseman, but there's been this chatter that says, you know what, Anthony Hopkins may slip in there. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, does Chadwick Boseman get, you know, this obviously was his last chance to win an Oscar. Will this happen? Or will Anthony Hopkins, who's won an Oscar before, slip in there and take that? Mark Malkin, Variety's senior culture and events columnist and editor. Mark, thanks. COVID has quite literally hit a peak, a new high, all the way up to Mount Everest. Norwegian climber became the first to test positive for the coronavirus in the Mount Everest base camp was flown by helicopter to Kathmandu, Nepal, where he was taken to the hospital. He told the Associated Press he tested positive April 15th. Another test this week, negative. Now he's staying with a local family. Mountain Guide was warned the virus could spread among the hundreds of other climbers, guides, and helpers that are now encamped at the base of Everest if they don't get checked immediately and if safety measures aren't taken. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.